This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 16. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 16, The Constitutional Revolution of 1906. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. And we invite you to check out parts 1 through 15 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 16. Well, it is impossible to look at the contemporary history of Iran without placing focus on an event that is generally considered a pivotal turning point and foundation of modern Iran, the Constitutional Revolution of 1906. In the early 20th century, in the midst of widespread discontent with the corruption and inefficacy of the Qajar dynasty and its new leader, Mozaffar Adin Shah, a powerful movement formed and mobilized aimed at changing the structure of the monarchy from despotic to constitutional and to adopt representative governance by introducing the country to a parliamentary system. It further resulted in a written constitution in which a separation between different branches of government was recognized. But, of course, like much of Iranian history, it was not as simple as all that. That same landmark constitution was abolished only a year later, and a coup and a civil war ensued before it was reestablished in 1909, with Iran subsequently finding a new 11-year-old Shah at the helm. 
So, how important was the period of the Constitutional Revolution in the formation of modern Iran? What gave rise to it, and what is its legacy? And how do we assess the goals of a pursuit of liberal secularism or parliamentary democracy or the containment of clerical dominance and the limiting of the power of the monarchy in the aftermath of the century that followed? Well, my guest today is an Iranian-British historian, author, and scholar who has quite literally published a book on this subject. Dr. Ali Masoud Ansari is an expert in modern history with a focus on the Middle East. Dr. Ansari is a professor of Iranian history and founding director of the Institute for Iranian Studies at the University of St. Andrews. He's a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, an associate fellow at Chatham House, and the president of the British Institute for Persian Studies. Dr. Ansari was born in Rome, Italy, obtained his master's from King's College in London, and his doctorate from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Dr. Ansari has published articles in prestigious journals and newspapers such as The Guardian, The Independent, and The New Statesman, and has been a regular presence at events and conferences about Iran. He is the author of several books, including The Politics of Nationalism in Modern Iran, Iran, A Very Short Introduction, Iran, Islam, and Democracy, The Politics of Managing Change, and germane to today's discussion, his book of 2016, Iran's Constitutional Revolution of 1906, and Narratives of the Enlightenment. And right now, Dr. Ali Ansari joins me from Fife, Scotland today. Hello, sir. Hello, uh, and thank you for that introduction. I should just perhaps give you a slight correction on the, the, the wonderful list of titles you gave me, because uh, I'm no longer at Chatham House, and I'm no longer president of the British Institute of Persian <laughs> Studies. So um, I used to be, so uh, you, that can go in the past, but maybe that can be basically removed. Uh, if you're no longer the president, I'm not sure we can continue with this interview. I know. But, I uh, thought, yeah, maybe, maybe be led on, to, on a false pretense. <laughs> Your yes. titles rise and fall like the Shahs of the early 20th century. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like the you know, academics, they like to accumulate titles. That's the thing, yeah. Uh, it is a great pleasure to talk to you and to have uh, very read welcome. your book. Thank you for very doing this. Very pleased to be here. Let, let me start with this. I mean, if you'll forgive the this simple sure. nature of the question, it seems like an accepted orthodoxy that the constitutional revolution of the early 20th century in Iran marks the beginning of modern Iran. Do you agree? Uh, in a broad sense, yes. I mean, I think for me, uh, as you, as your excellent introduction actually sort of outlined, for me, this is this is the pivotal moment. This is the uh, uh, the, the moment where Iran. Uh, effectively enters the, the the modern age with a constitutional system, uh, ostensibly a legal system. And of course, for me and for others who study this, the constitutional revolution basically sets the political template for the country for for the next century and beyond. And will we still talk about it? It's it's a it's an extraordinary event in sort of completely changing the nature of the political organisation of the country. And for instance, even after the Islamic Revolution in 1979, you know, those basic elements of a, a sort of a, at least in theory, you know, a constitutional system of having a parliament and so on and so forth, nobody's ever done without it. They hmm. probably systematically ignored parliaments and ignored things, but nobody's had the sort of the courage to get rid of it. So in a sense, it's become something that's quite fixed in the political, uh, in the political landscape of, of Iran. 
All right. Well, I want to get to all of that. Let me ask you about terminology to begin with. Sure. I, I have found it confusing. That, In fact, I'm mm. grateful that I've had the opportunity to read your book and, and learn more about the constitutional revolution because it's always been confusing to me that the term constitutional mm. revolution is associated mm. with a period of five years or so. You mean mm. establishing a constitution usually has a year associated, like the, the 1776 in America or the Constitution mm. Act of 1867 mm. in Canada. But I understand the terminology we use for Iran is to refer to the establishment of the constitution, but also to the entire movement of the period, correct? Well, I mean, basically, when you look at the, it depends how, you know, historians love to sort of categorize time periods and eras, and they tend to sort of look at, um, you know, the period from, you know, the end of 1905, 1906 onwards to, you know, some people say up to 1921 really is the constitutional period. I mean, other people will shorten it. And it's really this era when the constitution was being established, debated, contested, so on and so forth. I mean, I, I would argue and I have argued in other places that basically it lays the template uh, which extends much further and that henceforth, you know, again, whether people ignore the constitution or, or otherwise in practice, they can't ignore it in theory. So it, it, it's something that shapes the way in which Iranians henceforth think about their politics. Um, but yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's seen in, a, a, in sort of most standard histories as a, as a specific period in, in, in Iran's modern history. Take us back, uh, Dr. Ansari, to the 19th century. I mean, before, before we get mm. to the specifics of what precipitated sure. the, the constitutional revolution, g- give us a sense of life in the second half of the 20th, the 19th century, rather, under Nasser al-Din Shah. In what ways was the structure of monarchy and perhaps despotism of the Qajar era eroding to the point where going into the 20th century, a collective will would come about to bring structural change in a constitutional order? Well, the the sort of the, the decline of the Iranian state, uh, the decline of the Rajah state had been really taking place since the early 19th century. But it was only, as you say, in a sense, uh, in the second half of the 19th century that people began to sort of address these issues much more earnestly. And I think there was some early hope under Nasruddin Shah's reign when he had the very uh, active and energetic and reforming prime minister that we know known to posterity as Amir Kabir, you know, who basically tried to, you know, to reimagine, you know, the Iranian state to 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 bring it into some sort of sense of, you know, efficiency and ability to deal with what they perceive to be the challenge really of uh, European powers and European imperialism, particularly what was going on in the north, the Russians, but of course the British who were establishing themselves in India. So, Amir Kabir's death, basically his execution, you know, by Nasruddin Shah basically terminates that early promise of, of, of the hope of change. And really what you see for the rest of the 19th century is this sort of gradual sort of decline in inactivity with a lot of agitation from intellectuals, some who come from sort of what we might term the clerical classes, but also from the landowning classes and others who are trying to agitate for greater and greater reform, but finding themselves also caught between the sort of rival imperial powers of Britain uh, and Russia that often curtails the possibility of doing anything, certainly from the Russian side. Right. Uh, but also, you know, what it means is that, you know, n- nothing happens. We, we, we get into this sort of, uh, uh, you know, a stagnation, really. The, the death of Nasser al-Din Shah seems yeah. pivotal here. I mean, he's assassinated after 50 years on the throne, mind you, in 1896. His son, Mozaffar al-Din Shah, takes over. But he, he's a very different personality. How, how would you describe the change? 
Well, I mean, really, I mean, if strictly speaking, what we should look is a little bit further back, actually, in, in terms of the tobacco revolt, which was a, a revolt against an economic concession given to a British entrepreneur, uh, a really a bit of a wheeler dealer and not the best, uh, not the best concession ever offered, it has to be said. And one in which Nasruddin Shah had offered really to gain a bit of extra money. He was he was fairly frugal with his own money. He, he sought to sort of sell off various assets in order to raise money to do the various things he wanted to do, basically travel abroad. And um, that tobacco revolt is seen by a number of writers, including the British Orientalist uh, Edward Brown, as a pivotal moment, the opposition to that tobacco concession, the fact that opposition mobilized to basically force the Shah's hand to uh, remove the concession. Um, Edward Brown and others say this is the beginning of the Persian or the Iranian awakening. This mm. is the time when basically a, a sort of a political awakening happens. But it's a modest thing. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing is that in the history of the sort of political awakening and sort of liberal movements in that sense, there is a sense that uh, something can be done. You know, we can resist the monarch, we can force his hand, we can get him to uh, to change very right, unpopular right. Crack, a crack in the armor, right? Yeah, that's what it is. I mean, I, I think some people exaggerate its consequences, but nonetheless, it's, it's a significant uh, moment. But you're quite right. You know, the Shah is then assassinated in 1896. You know, we still sort of settle back into a sort of element of stagnation. His son comes in and, you know, with, <laughs> with, with great sort of... Um, uh, tragic irony in some ways his son is even more inept and even more inactive than the father so you know this sort of notion that oh we have a new king on the throne he might have a bit more energy he might be able to want to do things actually he doesn't Mozafraddin Shah is actually you know more anxious to acquire title and honors and prestige than his father but probably you know does even less so the malaise is really settling in so how does Mozafraddin Shah Qajar's weakness that ineptitude you've just spoke about not to mention from what i understand he's not as much of a strong man he has more liberal tendencies how does that at the turn of the century translate into the conditions where mm. iranian educated elites and even religious authorities are interested in a curb on royal authority and the establishment of some kind of rule of law well what what's interesting about it? i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't call mozafaddin shah liberal by the way i mean i i i don't think he had a but particularly a liberal bone in his body, actually. I mean, he, he's basically, his hand is forced in, in 1906 to make concessions, and he's also very ill. But there are there are issues building up, really, at the end of the 19th century. A lot of pressures building up, particularly from intellectuals. They're very prominent uh, religious intellectuals as well, such as Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, who basically agitate for reform, who demand a constitution, the rule of law. There's the Armenian-Iranian Malcolm Khan, who's sitting sitting in London, produces a newspaper called Ghanun, which he sort of harangues the Rajar government and says, you know, in order to move anywhere, we need the rule of law. I mean, basically, they promote these liberal ideas that they get really from France and Britain. And... Uh, in 1899, for instance, there's a school of political science and law is established in Tehran uh, by uh, Fururi, I think his father, and also the, the, the prominent uh, intellectual of the constitution afterwards. And these all, um, these all start to feed in and you know, seed ideas. But what's fascinating about the revolution itself is that what sparks it is something quite small. And it, 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 as, as with all with, with these things, it's quite trivial and not really foreseen. It's, it's, it's normally to do, as in this case, with a sort of like a tax revolt. There's a very, very avaricious Belgian customs official by the name of Monsieur Naus, who basically goes around trying to collect customs revenues. He's seen as corrupt. Um, he's seen as oppressive. 
and basically it's it's his you know um, oppressive tendencies that tends to spark off or sparks of a certain protest. But the most interesting thing is that the the the, the last sort of British sort of report. Uh, at the end of 1905, dispatched to London at the beginning of 1906, makes no indication, sort of basically says that nothing is happening in this country. The country <laughs> is just stagnating. And, um, you know, the, yes, there's been some protests in certain areas, but we can't see anything happening. And it's a salutary lesson, actually, that, uh, you know, even with widespread sort of diplomats, intelligence on the ground, whatever, sometimes you just don't see things coming until they hit you in the face. Right. And literally, it's a few weeks later that the whole process of um you know the the of, of the protests emerging starts to galvanize and 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 what we now know is the constitutional revolution basically starts to uh, uh, unfold not the only iranian revolution of the 20th century some, no, some people didn't see coming right <laughs> exactly uh, yeah. well or any movement i mean i often say to students as well if you look at the arab spring or you look at other things you know these things are often triggered by seemingly quite trivial incidents well you talked about the british and the russians i mean there's also a um a, and I, i'm glad that you were giving a specific um example to illustrate this, I was thinking of one where there's a, there's an imposition of, of tariffs to repay a Russian loan for Mozaffar yeah. al-Din's royal tour. I mean, it's such a it's it, it's it's such a cheap kind of uh, you, you know event, and yet you can see even in the contemporary context how that would draw the ire of the citizens, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I at the end of the day, I mean, also we also have to understand that the the politically active segment of the population at this stage in Iran is very small, but it's quite active. I mean, th this is the difference. I mean, I think some foreign observers look at it and they say, well, nothing is really happening. But the fact is, you know, we have a population in Iran of perhaps, say, about, I mean, we don't know for sure, but say around 10 million. The population of Tehran itself is perhaps, we can estimate, around 200, 250,000. These are fairly small, but then that also means that the politically active population is likewise small, but but it, it's quite influential. And, you know, a lot of them are agitating for changes. And in some cases, you know, the British at the, at the end of the 19th century or, you know, certainly the second half of the 19th century were actively engaged in sort of trying to satisfy some of these reformist yearnings by supporting ideas for uh, political change. But a lot of that was resi resisted by the court, be it Nasruddin Shah or Mazafar al-Din Shah, because also that's where the Russians were most powerful. The Russians had a much firmer grip on the court, and they weren't interested in any idea of liberal sort of constitutionalism. The Tsar was an autocrat, and what he wanted to see in Iran was similar autocracy. And of course, that's where, you know, what happens in 1906 is actually a very, very strange coincidence of uh, of events, a coincidence of events, conjunction of events, if you will, that allow the constitutional revolution actually to, to unfold. And one of the important things is that Russia is temporarily taken off the scene. Right. I mean, right. That, that's something that's quite important. You know, since you're mentioning the political class and ideas, Mm. Uh, and and your book your that you've edited mm. uh, deals with the the ideas of the Enlightenment. Yeah. I, I, let, let me ask you just briefly about that as sort of a sidebar, and if yeah. you can do this simply, how how did Iran's constitutional movement draw on a diverse range of ideas and orientations that, in good measure, were associated with the Enlightenment? Well, a number of Iranians had been going to the West really since uh, 1815, actually. I mean, a, a steady trickle had been going to the West. They went to France. They went to Britain in particular. They wrote some very interesting travelogues and accounts of their experiences there. Um, and they were, they were really taken by the political system 
particularly in Britain, actually, is what impressed them. And um, they compared it and contrasted it with what they found at home and um, realized in some ways that, you know, what... Uh, you know, Britain had in some in some ways was they'd applied certain lessons of what we would now turn the Enlightenment. So basically, things about the rule of law, uh, a sense of, of of discipline and order, good governance, education, and other things. And of course, the British in their early days certainly argued with the Iranians, who they they were trying to to, to basically cultivate. I mean, they sought to cultivate them against their Russian opponents in that sense. Was to say, look, you know. These are ideas that you can absorb, you can turn to good effect and apply in your own country. They never said, for instance, that the Iranians or anyone else was actually incapable of doing these things. They would actually, if you look at early accounts, the British would say, look, you know, 200 years ago, we were nothing. But, you know, we've applied ourselves and look what we've become. If you do it, you can do this too. And of course, that's a very attractive you know, argument to many reformers mm-hmm. who thought, mm-hmm. well, this is a way to deal with it. They just suffered defeats at the hands of the Russians. They wanted to find ways to deal with that. And what the what these thinkers were saying was it's not simply a case of building a better army. You know, a lot of people would say, well, what you need to do is you need to strengthen your armed forces. What the British were actually saying to them was that you cannot build better armed forces if you don't change the political system you have in order to sustain that. And this, these are the ideas that were coming through. And by the end of the 19th century, it's quite powerfully expressed by a number of thinkers. I've already mentioned two, like Afghani and, and uh, right. Malcolm Khan. Right. But then you see others. And and one of one of the things which I've talked about, and it's also, I think, in, in, in that book, um, it's very striking the number of Iranian intellectuals throughout the 19th century that become members of Masonic lodges. You know, they all become Freemasons. And the reason they become Freemasons is because it allows them a sort of an entry into this sort of international intellectual brotherhood. And this is the way they absorb these ideas. You know, basically, to become a Freemason, you just have to believe in God. That's absolutely fine. You're a Muslim. You can do that. You don't have to believe in anything else. And But it, it brings you in. You know, you're no longer an outsider you're part of that sort of movement and of course freemasonry in those days was had quite a different sort of agenda it was very iconoclastic it was very anti-organized religion it sought in many ways very progressive i mean it promoted progressive ideas so these were things so if you look at the constitutional revolution itself for instance almost every constitutional leader of note came from a single lodge in tehran Hmm. you know i mean they, they all were members of a single lodge and these were means by which these ideas, in my view, okay. Were hang on a second. Then, just with, sure. with respect to the Enlightenment, and yeah. forgive the naivete of this question. Sure. As, as a kid of the late twentieth century, early twenty first century, I, you know, I don't, uh, and who grew up in the West, by the way, like you. I mean, sure. I, I don't totally understand. You you write at one point in the in the introduction to essay to that that book. You say Iran's written constitution introduced modern concepts of citizenship and political mm-hmm. rights to Iranian politics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I look at that and go, wait, what what was the thinking around citizenship and rights before this? I mean, what what if yeah. this was being introduced, what was citizenship before it was introduced? Well, basically Prior to that, you see the ideas, and, and, and there are a number of interesting discussions between, um, as far you know, where, where my work lies, really, between British and, and Iranian officials in the early 19th century and others. And they talk about that. They, 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 they talk about the different nature of their political systems. And the Iranian political system is basically an authoritarian system based around the monarch. And the monarch has his subjects. I mean, you have to look at it in terms of the monarch and his subjects. And the monarch has, theoretically at least, absolute control. 
Okay, an absolute authority. Now, these are obviously delimited in some ways, either by religion and also the ability to do things. But there's no sort of constitutional, legal or other sort of uh, control on, on, the, on the monarch's power. And there's a very famous scene recounted by a British official. This is, you know, in the early 19th century when he talks to Fat Ali Shah, who's the second Rajah monarch. And they comment, they, they contrast the different systems. And Fat Ali Shah says to this official, Sir John Malcolm, he says, it sounds to me as if your monarch is simply the first magistrate. He doesn't really have much power. He can't really do much. He's so subject are to you, the law. Hang on a second. Are you saying mm. that the concept of citizenship then, pre, pre-Constitution, mm. uh, would be you're not necessarily the citizen of a country, you're the subject of a monarch? Yes. That, so, yeah, right. so basically, in the early mod, so if you look in, if, if we're discussing here, what are one of the contributions of the ideas of the Enlightenment? And remember that when I when, when I was looking at that book, I talk about narratives of the Enlightenment in the right, plural because right. they're obviously different types. And there's the French Enlightenment, there's the British. There are different aspects of it, and it's a very big sort of European movement. Um, and sometimes you can't describe, by the way, national characteristics. But it's quite interesting to see how different strands develop in, di- in different areas and of course you know the, the the difference is really that concepts of rights i mean the idea that a citizen you have a right is a very very 18th century enlightenment idea i mean prior to that you, you don't have the concept of rights hmm. um so it's not something that is as as established as you get then yes there are there are sort of uh, monarchs in the past who talk about almost like a, a sort of a social contract of sorts you know um i will do this you will do that so on and so forth we exchange it but the notion that you know as you get I, th- I think expressed most obviously in the American Declaration of Independence, you know, that we are in- endowed with inalienable rights. Um, uh, this is, you know, uh, this is something that's that, that's really a product of 18th century political. Huh. So, why, you know, when the actual 1906 Constitution gets yeah. created. Why was it not an option? I mean, given the dissatisfaction, given the, you know, the will to to change things. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, maybe this is a naive question, but but why was it not an option just to get rid of the monarchy altogether and establish a parliamentary system only, vis-a-vis like like a, like America? Well, it, it's it's very interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating question because basically the three options ahead of them are the British system, the French system, and the American system. The the way they look at it is they see the British system as most suitable to the to what they want to do, and partly it's also to do with the fact that by overthrowing the monarch would be in a sense seen as a step too far right i mean for them they want to get something done so they find in a sense a a medium a medium line to so they don't want to get rid of the monarch and they actually the, the revolutionaries say this they say there are people who argue that you know particularly the russians would say when they were trying to rubbish the constitutional movement that you you know your role you know your your anarchists your you know basically the equivalent today of terrorists or something you know and uh you know you 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 want to overthrow the entire system now there were many clerics who supported, obviously, the Constitutional Revolution, and they would not have supported the Constitutional Revolution, I think, at the time, if you were getting rid of the monarch altogether. I mean, this is not 1979. The clerics liked the monarch. They liked having oh, yes, a monarchy. Because, because the monarch is basically also a concept that sits quite well within their Islamic worldview, okay? As long as he's a Muslim monarch, of course. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Uh-huh. So it's not something that you see in 1979. This is quite different. I mean, 1979 has different antecedents, of course, different influences. The influence, to my mind, of the Constitutional Revolution that is the most profound is the British model. I mean, that's what they want to follow. And they're most impressed by that. They have some ideas of the American system, but they're not 
as familiar with it. And the French system is too far for them. The idea in the French system that you execute your monarch and so on and so forth is just not is not something they want to. That you know, th- th- this would be too disruptive. The order would be too disruptive. Of course, the British had executed their monarch, you know, back in the 17th century. But it's not, it's not, you know, it's it's not something that that has any proximity. And for them, the British model of parliamentary, in a sense, democracy um, with a limited franchise. By the way, I mean, it's it's not a, um, you know, it's. A, I hesitate to use the word democracy because these are not terms they would have necessarily used themselves. I mean, what they talk about a lot is the republic. And when they use the term republic, of course, in the 19th century, what they're meaning is a system of the rule of law. Mm. So the British system and the French system are both republics in that sense. One has a monarch, one doesn't. But the fact is that's the way they look at it. These distinctions that we are familiar with happen come later. Beyond the establishment of institutional laws, mm-hmm. um, how did the Constitution and the Constitutional Revolution enshrine and embolden Iranian nationalism? In a, in a previous episode in this series, we talked about this period being the start of the Persianization of the country. In fact, we were speaking to somebody, uh, a professor who's a Kurdish expert, uh, talking mm. about how this was the beginning of dissatisfaction amongst the Kurds because they suddenly say we're being left out because we're seeing Persianization. How does Iranian nationalism play into the constitutional revolution? Well, certainly it feeds into it. It certainly feeds into it and it comes out of it too. And one of the reasons is, I mean, th- th- these are some of the consequences of the vision that they have that, of course, does tend to erase differences. So you've got to understand that Iran, at the end of the, you know, I always describe Iran in some senses as an imperial kingdom. It's it's basically made of a multitude of different peoples. The term Iran itself is, yes, a geog- it's, it's a territory, it's a political territory, but it's also a geographic term. So it's the guarded domains of Iran is the official title in a sense. But out coming out of the Constitutional Revolution, it's quite true, is that Iran then becomes a sort of a national identity in a much, much more evocative way. And Iran and its, its intellectuals are much more successful of basically transforming this imperial state of the 19th century, if you can use that term, into a national state in the 20th century without significant loss of territory. I mean, the Ottomans weren't successful at this. Mm. Other empires were not successful. But the Iranians did it in some ways. But one of the costs of this is exactly what your previous speaker, in a sense, says. So let me give you an example. I always use this example. One of the things that the constitutional revolutionaries wanted to do, they never got round, they never able to, ultimately it lies in the time of Reza Shah when this happens. But... Um, what they want to do is they want to introduce, uh, they say, you know, we have to educate our public. We have to educate them. You know, the enlightened, these ideas in the enlightenment, what we need to do is we need to educate our public. But when that when that comes up, people say, well, how do we start this? How do we do this? Well, we have to get a language of instruction. Hmm. Okay, so how do you do this? Well, we need a standard language of instruction. And then, of course, you know, it, it gradually resides that when they start producing, mass producing education in a sense, the language that is chosen clearly is Persian. Persian is the language that at least is the first language or at least the second language of the majority of the population. And it's seen as a unifying factor on the Iranian plateau. It's part of Persian culture. So naturally, in a sense, if you're going to f- pursue sort of policies of mass education, a sort of development of a modern state in a way, what you end up seeing actually is the the gradual erasure in a sense of um, the differences and distinctions, because it's right. just simply not possible to do it otherwise. Right. In the Ottoman Empire, by the way, by as an example, 
when they did that, when they wanted to introduce mass education, what they decided to do then was to opt for the language of the majority of the population at the time. And the language of the majority of the population was Ottoman Turkish or, or Turkish and Anatolia. But of course, that alienated all the Arab centers of the empire. And that's one of the reasons why the Ottoman Empire could not hold together. But Persian was seen as a language that could keep you know, most of the peoples of, of the Iranian state together. Okay, so by 1906, we, yeah. ha- we have a constitution. And then the next few years play out like an episode of Game of Thrones. I mean, it's... It does. It, yeah. it's, this, it's this messed up roller coaster. So Muzaffar al-Din, who... Uh, presides I mean, over the, the, dies, the constitution, yeah. then dies. Yeah. If, you know, forty yeah. days later, very conveniently, his yeah. son Muhammad Ali, uh, mm. no relation, uh, is <laughs> then. I mean, no relation to Muhammad Ali. Right? So it's the no, son no, no, of no, Musafar. No, 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 yeah. He is opposed to the constitution. By 1907, he's in power, dissolves the National Assembly, yeah, abolishes yeah. the constitution. Why? Well, we have to sort of turn the clock back slightly here because in 1906 as I was mentioning earlier, is a period when the Russians are off the scene. Okay, so the Russians are off the scene. They suffered a defeat in the Russo-Japanese War, which is absolutely shocking. I mean, most people around the world, they couldn't believe that the Russians had lost a war to the Japanese, an Asian power. Then they have the Russian Revolution of 1905. This is also a disaster. Tsar Nicholas is basically slightly in retreat. He's pulled away. The British are much more, in terms of the uh, of the power in Iran, are much more... Uh, freer, you know, have much more freedom of action. And certainly the constitutionists go to the British. And of course, one of the famous events of 1906 is the sanctuary that Iranian intellectuals, and if you remember, I said earlier that the population of Tehran was probably around 250,000. 14,000 people seek sanctuary in the British embassy compound in Golak. And it's from there that basically the the, the, the details of the constitution are worked out. And they, they go to the British charge d'affaires. There's only a charge d'affaires at the time. And he is basically entrusted with negotiating the settlement of a constitution. So that's what happens within Iran. Unfortunately for the Iranian constitutionalists, the government in London is not remotely interested in supporting this huh. because what they're more into, this is, it's a great tragedy, to be honest. And, and I think a great mistake of British policy at the time. The foreign secretary at the time of a new liberal government, as it happens, basically comes in and he's more interested in securing the security of Britain in Europe. And the security of Britain in Europe means basically containing Germany. Containing Germany means an alliance with the French and, by extension, the Russians, who are the allies of the French. What this means is that by 1907, the British sign a convention with the Russians to settle their disputes in Asia so they can look forward to a much more constructive relationship in Europe. This is a disaster, the Anglo-Russian convention, because basically what the British for reasons that are known probably only to Edward Grey, they basically agree that the north of Iran, all those populated centers, all those areas of constitutional agitation become part of the Russian sphere of influence. And that Russian sphere of influence, the British will not interfere in. And it's there that, you know, Muhammad Ali, what I was saying earlier, of course, the Russians are much more, you know, in control in the court. They have much more influence. Muhammad Ali is a reactionary with a capital R, and he basically, you know, with Russian encouragement, goes off to suppress the constitutional movement. He's not interested in it. And of course, the British don't do anything. They don't do anything because they say we signed an agreement with but the But I don't understand why it was so easy to 
I mean, I get what you're saying about Tabriz and the North and, and, and the, the Russian influence, but why it was so, I mean, I was in preparation for this interview, uh, rereading Abbas Amonat's book, Modern yeah. Iran, and he talks sure. about how the support for the constitutional revolution was pluralistic. There was this diverse social and political groups participating. Why was it so easy? You know, by 1908, there's a coup, there's the destruction of the Majlis, the abandoning of the constitution. I'm not saying it was easy, but why does it get yeah. ro- rolled back so dramatically only a year or two later? Well, there are two there are two things, basically. The first thing is that the Russians bring force. Okay, so the Russians have basically control over the one military force in the country that is worth anything, and that's the Cossack Brigade. And the Cossack Brigade uh, basically is mobilized really in favor of the anti-revolutionaries and in favor of the monarch. They're also not ill-disposed or not shy about sending troops across the border if they need to. I mean, that's what they do. So, they, they you know, this, this is pure, you know, repression. The other side of it, of course, is that the constitutionists then realize that there is no hope of support from the British. The British seem to be absent from the scene. And there's a very famous uh, appeal to England that one of the prominent revolutionaries, Hassan Etarizadeh, does when he goes to London in 1908 to plead with the British to come to the assistance of the constitutional revolutionaries. And he makes a very interesting point. He says, we're not asking you to interfere in our politics. We're quite prepared to manage this situation ourselves. Mm. But we are asking you to stop the Russians interfering in our <laughs> politics. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting nuance, you know. And of course, the British at the time are just, you know, basically absent without leave. I mean, they, 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 they don't want to do it. And that's why, basically, there is, certainly in 1907 and, you know, this period, that there is, you know, what they call the minor um, autocracy or minor dictatorship. Yes. But then, finally, you know, the, 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 the revolutionaries, you know, build up a momentum of force of their own with certain tribal groups and others and Satar Khan in the north. And they basically uh, are, are able uh, to put Muhammad Ali back in his box. But, it, but it's a struggle. I mean, basically, the country descends into um, a very, very factious civil war. And it's, it's partly the consequence, I have to say, that also the constitutionists themselves were extremely idealistic about what they thought they could achieve. And, um, you know, when the first parliament sat, you know, uh, it, it sort of suddenly occurred to them that they had none of the means, you know, no means of government. I mean, there was no sort of bureaucracy or anything. I mean, the, right. the government of the Rajas. Right. So when, when they sort of sit in parliament, they say things like, you know, we're going to have mass education, we're going to have a railway line, we're going to have construction. And there's no infrastructure. Have, and nobody, and <laughs> someone says, well, how are you going to do this? Right. And they said, and th- this is the interesting thing, they say, well, you know, uh, the king will pay for it. He says, no, I'm not going to pay for it. You have to raise taxes. But then, of course, when you say raise taxes, they say, well, how are we going to raise taxes? I mean, there's no, nothing. Do you see, I mean, do you see right. the problem? I mean, the problem is right. there. Right. Uh, so there's a uh, this fractious civil war over the next two years. And then in July 1909, as, as you've intimated, pro-constitution yeah. forces march from the provinces to Tehran, depose the Shah, Muhammad Ali, yeah. reestablish the constitution. And then something funny happens, which is, I mean, again, I, I understand that I'm doing this through the prism of the 21st century sitting in the sure. West, but sure. but the parliament votes to place, so the, the constitution is reestablished. Majlis is there. Then the parliament votes to place Muhammad Ali's 11-year-old son, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ahmad Shah, on the throne. Yeah. I mean, if these yeah. enlightened constitutionalists were so enlightened, could they not have predicted that this is going to end in disaster over the next decade? Um, 
no, not if you sort of believe that. You see what they what they're arguing. I mean, and this is a very sort of like it's a standard procedure. I mean, what's very interesting about it is that the parliament takes the decision to depose a particular monarch and put another one on the throne, and that's precisely actually, if you look at it, what the British parliamentary system did in the 17th century. Of course, I mean, they depose and then they put people that they consider to be more favourable. Of course, uh, Amatshah is very young, but also uh, they try and imbue in this idea that his form of kingship has to be different to his father's i mean it, it it's it's that sort of element it's not entirely i have to say um uh, misplaced at all i mean th- these are things that um would have been would have been quite common really i think to you know even uh you know you could see in revolutionaries in other countries mm. not all revolutions i mean i think our problem is is that we see all revolutions through the prism of the french russian and and you know mm-hmm. islamic revolution right, right, 1979 right. and that that slightly colors what we're thinking you know i would say i mean that's this is my argument and i've said this i say this the students actually i say you know which was more successful the american revolution or the french revolution and it's it's a question that people have to ask you know i would argue actually in some ways the american revolution which you know that is has had much more profound consequences and it was a much less violent it wasn't non-violent by any stretch of imagination but it was a much less violent and much less dramatic in a sense revolution than the french revolution in that but you get what i'm saying i mean if here we are talking about political rights the establishment of law infrastructure education and now let's put an 11 year old on the throne i mean it it seems uh at odds and was the idea that that ahmad shah would somehow be easier to control well, I mean, the point is, of course, according to the Constitution, the Shah is only meant to reign, not rule. So an 11-year-old's perfect. He just needs to sit there and do the symbolic stuff. Um, the responsibility for government lies to his ministers. That's the change in the system. So the, the monarchy represents the authority of the state, but he shouldn't be doing, you know, day-to-day running a government, and he doesn't have responsibility. So in that way, there's no there's no contradiction there, to be honest. Dr. Ansari, um, sorry, go ahead, yeah. You're quite right to say, by the way, it doesn't work. I mean, ultimately, it doesn't work. But all I'm <laughs> well, saying I'm is, just saying, couldn't somebody yeah. have said, he's 11? <laughs> you know, no, I no, mean, no, no, because, because it doesn't work, not for reasons, basically, of the Shah. It doesn't work because the whole constitutional system becomes ineffectual. I mean, ah, what you're arguing, right. yeah, I don't think it has to do with his age, but what ultimately happens is precisely, you know, you go through the Great War, which is devastating for Iran, you know, the First World War, and then ultimately what they find is that they say that, you know, and this is intellectual, it's not just, you know, the, let's set conspiracy theories aside for the time being. There's a lot of Iranian intellectuals who say, look, you know, what we need, what we really need is, you know, this constitution is all very well and good, but what we need is government. You know, we, we, yeah. we need forms yeah. of government and governance, and we need something. So, you know, what they end up finding, of course, is a strong man, you know, that comes in the form of Reza, Reza Khan. Shah. But, yeah. you have, but you have to remember that when Reza Khan stroke Reza Shah comes in with uh, Tabo Taboy and others in 1921, again, they're not overthrowing the monarch. They don't overthrow Ahmad Shah. They right. just simply say, we're getting rid of your government, we're going to give you a decent government, and we're going to start building the state. Ultimately, exactly as you say, you know, obviously Reza Khan has ambitions that are, you know, in another direction. There are many of his supporters who say, actually, let's get rid of these Rajars because, frankly, they've been useless. And let's bring in a new dynamic national monarchy, which is how they identify the Before path. we get to Reza Shah, though, and, and the, the path yeah. of these and, and the legacy, uh, just two steps back. I mean, sure. it, it, I'm just curious what happens to this 
this uh, fertile movement of the constitutionalists who win yeah. by 1909. I mean, I, I guess by 1914, say, Iran is a fundamentally different place from what it had been a decade earlier. But this movement yeah. for liberal reforms, is it just that between the ongoing opposition from the Qajar regime, the clerical conservatives, the external great powers, Russia, etc., it, it just loses its momentum? Is that what yeah. happens? No, I mean, it loses, it loses its momentum, really, because it finds that actually its ambition is far exceeds its capabilities. I mean, that, that that's the simple, you know. Mm. So... You know, there's enormous, uh, there's enormous enthusiasm. I mean, one of the striking uh, documents I, you know, I found and I, I is very interesting is that uh, Muhammad Ali Fururi, you know, the the great intellectual and I, I would say godfather of national identity in Iran and nationalism. You know, he writes a handbook for the first deputies of 1906 of what it means to be a deputy. You know, what you're meant to do. This is the form of governments, and mm. he basically takes the British and the French systems, and he says, "This is what you. This is what a right is. This is what you know your rights are. This is what legislation is. This is how you should vote." I mean, these are very basic handbooks. So what you see is that actually there are people learning on the on the go. I mean, they're sort of like, right, you know right. the practicalities is learning, but what they find is they have these marvelous ideas. I mean, a lot of these ideas are then implemented under Reza Shah, of course. I mean, that's what happens. Reza Shah is the is the implementation period. But it takes them a long time to realize that, you know, um, they can't do these things. And, of course, mm. the, when the First World War hits, uh, you know, it, it basically uh, central government in Iran, you know, collapses in the First World War. I mean, there is no central right, government. Right, it's basically right. local. Before but the First um, World War, though, by, by sure. 1914, yeah. what would you say? I mean, how successful would you, a uh, hundred years later in assessing this, how successful were Iranian constitutionalists of the early 20th century in defining that relationship between the religious and the political spheres in Iran by, by 1914, say? Well, this is the interesting thing. And then again, it's a very pertinent question. I mean, basically what I would say is they were extremely successful in defining the new language of politics, but they were woeful at implementing it. I mean, that's basically, you know, the, the uh. distinction. So even by 1914, I mean, there, there is, there's not a huge amount that they can... I mean, the, the, the situation is very, very tough. But it's certainly true that they redefine the whole language. And one of the reasons they do that, of course, is because these are all intellectuals. And, and what they all go down doing is they all go writing histories and stories and narratives, and they lay down the template. I mean, that that's what's quite interesting about it. Um, it, it's it's like you know history being written by the losers in this mm. case because all the losers are intellectuals and write and they write a lot about it and they make you know they say why did we get this wrong why did we not get but what they do is they embed the whole movement within the national consciousness within the literary consciousness if i can put it that way and it becomes very prominent and of course because it, the constitutional revolution had huge support among even intellectuals in um, i mean prominent intellectuals in britain and other places i mean they supported it. it 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 was magnified it was amplified if i can put it that way um the fact that the british government didn't support it is, is neither here nor there in that sense but the fact is it became embedded within this narrative of political awakening national awakening if you will and so in that sense i think they were enormously successful some final questions before i let you go on legacy sure. of this yeah, yeah. pivotal moment so if the constitutional revolution remains this turning point in the history of Iran as a step forward on the path to socio-political modernity, yeah, yeah. how much of the political achievements of that moment remain intact over the years of the Pahlavi dynasty? Again, there seems to be a paradox when we get to Reza Shah where 
he implements and oversees, presides over a lot of the dreams of this constitutional mm-hmm. movement. At the, and at the same time, when it comes to reign over rule of the monarch, that's not exactly what pans out, right? That's right. So, I mean, what Reza Shah does is he's basically with his supporters, it has to be said. And this is one of the interesting things. I mean, Reza Shah is surrounded by people who are constitutionalists. I mean, they're, they're part of that revolutionary movement. And the, the, the main objective there is to build the state. I mean, basically, their argument is, we'll build the state, we'll build the bureaucracy, then we can start to do the things we want to do, and then we can start implementing the second stage of the constitution, which is basically to, you know, essentially to democratize, as, as we would understand it. Of course, you know, what Reza Shah does is he basically, whether by deliberately or otherwise, basically only gets to the position where he... You know, he builds the state. And, and one of the striking things, for instance, and I think one of the great failures of the Reza Shah period in that sense, there are many great successes, but those failures, is basically when he develops the independent, you know, when I say independent, when he develops a judiciary, penal codes, law systems, the, what they develop basically is, ironically, the rights of the state. They talk about the rights of the state, but they don't actually develop the concept of the rights of the citizen. Hmm. So they don't balance out the development of a, of a, of a mighty state with um you know various uh, uh limitations or protections for the citizen and that is really why? left to his son. why don't they i think part of it is a uh, part of it is time to be honest part of it is uh, uh a determined you know but so i mean reza shah comes in i mean really his active period is from 1924 to 1941 he's very anxious you know for his own mind he, he sees himself very much as a sort of a um, uh, a, a, a ruling monarch, certainly. He, interestingly, he identifies himself as a national or a constitutional monarch. He, he sees himself as constitutional. He's not, I mean, obviously, in many ways. But, you know, because he contrasts himself with the Rajas before him, he says, you know, basically, I'm much more, you know, modern in my thinking than the Rajas ever were. But I think, you know, partly it's personal preference, there's no doubt about it. I don't think he fully understood necessarily you know, that sort of, uh, you know, constitutional element, the sort of legal side of it for, for citizens. Part of it is time. I mean, I think there were limited, you know, it is possible that um, had things, you know, had he not been deposed in 1941, that the development of the state could have uh, gone further in, in the particular direction that would be more favourable. Um, I mean, there are there are a variety of issues around that. I, I would say it's a combination, really, of his own, I suppose, uh, preferences certainly by the end of his reign and his rule a certain paranoia um, but also I think when you look at it really you know the, the relative short amount of time that um, uh, he was there compared to you know successive what about successive his son rulers. Mohammad Reza Shah well his son I think so his son has the opportunity I think but I I think also what his son does is he emphasizes uh, in my view uh, mistakenly, still quite dramatic in some ways, but he em- emphasizes economic over political development. And I think that's a mistake. I think ultimately what Mohammad Reza Shah should have done is basically completed, in a sense, the revolution begun under the constitutionalists, implemented in good measure, but not completed by his father. It was up to Mohammad Reza Shah to complete that. Instead, unfortunately, I think you know, in the 1970s, really intoxicated with oil wealth and other things, he moved more and more towards uh, a much more autocratic system than than was certainly necessary. I think by that stage, uh, given the rapid growth in education, the rapid economic growth, so on and so forth, um, there was huge scope for much, much more engaged 
public political participation, okay. which just simply didn't happen. Let me ask you about post-1979, because uh, well, you, that's you, you, yes. you started this um, most interesting chat today. Uh, he's saying that some of the vestiges, the, 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 the parliamentary uh, standards, yeah. have, have remained intact. It would seem like the Islamic Republic of today is a renouncement of everything that the Constitutional Revolution would have stood for, at least yeah. in, when it comes to the the secularizing and, and um, parliamentary system parts of it. What do you think we are to make of the legacy of the Constitutional Revolution in Iran today under the Islamic Republic? Well, two things to bear in mind. One is that in the original constitution, of course, in 1906, there was also meant to be a council of you know five leading mujtahids who were meant to survey and, and, and look at law and make sure it's compatible with Islam. I mean, Islam and Shia Islam was still, if you look at the constitution, absolutely fundamental to the constitution of 1906. But you're quite right to say that obviously what people did is they moved to a much more secular uh, and nationalist uh, angle. Now, with the revolution in 1979, of course, this was an attempt, in a sense, to marry two quite distinct principles. One was a republican system that was based essentially on the French system married to this concept of Tafari and others and on that level yes you're quite right to say that it proved to be a very very unhappy marriage i mean it wasn't going to work and what we've seen subsequently really is the uh you know the the, the sort of collapse of that republican element that was you know at the foundation of the constitution in 1979 under the weight of this sort of islamic autocracy so in that sense yes i mean it has it has um uh, um, suppress those sort of uh, ideals. That said, what's very interesting is that A, they maintain the majlis as this sort of house of the people. Mm. Yes, they call it Islamic rather than national, but it's still a majlis and it's still very important. And many of the reformers, many of the intellectuals in Iran today, many of the sort of more progressive, all trace their origins back to 1906. And even, you know, in the centenary of the uh, Constitutional Revolution in 2006, there were huge numbers of discussions about how far have we come how far do we still need to go, to be honest, which was quite far. Hmm. And repeatedly, if you look at accounts in Iran, they always talk about, you know, the constitutional revolution as the moment which we have to refer back to, you know, and that's quite interesting. Um, the Obviously, the authorities in the Islamic Republic and the hardliners and the clerics tend to want to rubbish the, the constitutional revolution. They, they want to dismiss it. They think people like Fururi and Tarizada are all stooges of the West and so on and so forth. But it's quite interesting to see when you look a little bit deeper that these people are actually much, much more widely read in Iran today than, than perhaps the authorities would like. A final question to you. Sure. Um, you, you said something really interesting. Uh, I don't know halfway through this you said <laughs> something like uh you know we often we look at the british the french the americans but yeah. th there's the rest of the world too and yeah. and i wonder if we could take a macro look at this constitutional mm -hmm. revolution because yes it's easy to sort of in contradistinction to britain or or america say well iran was 200 years behind you know mm -hmm. uh yeah. but but it wasn't for the middle east this is um, no. this this constitutional revolution was as i understand it quite progressive or or ahead of its time to a certain extent um can, can you speak to that in terms of a well, final yes, thought I on mean, the legacy i would i mean what i'd say is one has to be careful because the ottoman constitution of course took place in 1876 but the ottoman constitution 
didn't get anywhere it lasted two years um and of course that ultimately failed and and you get different but you know you get a different outcome with the young turk revolution in 1908 but nonetheless there's a huge amount of overlap a huge amount of communication between the iranians and the ottomans on you know on on political reform but what's also striking is i mean i mentioned earlier also that you know the defeat of the russians to the japanese in 19 i think 1904 um the um what's interesting is these sort of things reverberate around the world and there are almost you can see comparative developments taking place in china you see developments in india you see you know where there is a sort of general movement and of course uh, the iranians were in some ways i wouldn't say necessarily you know at the forefront of this but they were they were certainly i in my view certainly the constitution was amongst the most progressive uh, constitutions of its time for 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 the for the non-European world, if I can put it, and I include the you know America in this. So it 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 is certainly interesting that I think they were at uh, the forefront of some of these developments. Um, but in terms of you know the most prominent in the Middle East, it really depends whether you count the Ottoman Empire as part. Right, of the is East. Turkey in the Middle East? <laughs> yeah, you see, right. So I mean, often, let's often say no, say, so oh, that we well, can well, claim well, to be yeah. first. Yeah. So if you if you exclude the Ottomans, then and we're absolutely on very safe ground. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Ali Ansari, I've, I've very much enjoyed this. Thank you for this. I hope you do come back. Thank you. Yes, I'd be an absolute pleasure. Maybe we can do Reza Shah next time. Oh, that would be a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Khudafis. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Ali Masood Ansari, an expert in modern history with a focus on the Middle East and a professor of Iranian history and founding director of the Institute for Iranian Studies at the University of St. Andrews. His 2016 book is entitled Iran's Constitutional Revolution of 1906 and Narratives of the Enlightenment. Dr. Ali Ansari joined us from Fife, Scotland today. This is Full time for the Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 16, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC, on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our main site, rookmedia.com, where you can also become a patron and sponsor of the show. Thanks to the team who make Rook Media happen. Talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, Savvy Roham, Ahai Mertad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashin.